Hi, this is James. And this is Dan. From Grog Talk, and you're listening to... Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 41, the party returns to Silmoral to conclude their mission for the Church of the Sacred Flame. But when they arrive at the church itself, they find the place deserted and the doors chained shut. A notice on the door explains, Every cleric belonging to the order has been arrested for the crime of treason. That leaves Bazu as the only cleric of Sadal at liberty in the city. It also leaves him more than a little shaken, confused, and anxious. The party hides out, spending the night in the cellar of the Fallfellow Inn, in the same place that this whole story began. Meanwhile, in Whitestone Castle, Sergeant Koch is reporting the mass arrest to Captain Krell, who ordered it in the first place. Krell had become suspicious of the worshippers of Sidal and their leader after discovering the counterfeit holy symbol in the tower of the City Watch. That discovery alone doesn't warrant such extreme measures, of course, but Krell saw an opportunity to advance his position and power in the city and took it. He plans to interrogate Sister Araness himself while Koch handles the two elder priests, brothers Ickhart and Terragrim. Krell is having a fairly good evening until Sind Wan ruins it by arriving with the news that Briar Patches, the royal jester, has escaped from the castle and is nowhere to be found. The chapter ends with another conversation between the Lord Rabbit and Yellowfly that takes place the following morning. After lamenting the recent and shocking news about the church, Lord Rabbit gives Yellowfly and his gang yet another mission. The fugitive, Briar Patches, is hiding out in his basement, right below their very feet, and Yellowfly's task is to safely get him out of Silmoral and into the custody of Lord Rabbit's friend in Nepule. Chapter 42 Part 1 Day 119 Late Afternoon Party Status Yellowfly 30 of 30 hit points Shawnee, 22 of 22 hit points. Jace, 26 of 26. Catsbane, 12 of 12. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, Read Languages, Invisibility, and Mirror Image. The companions were standing in a circle around an upright barrel in a warehouse owned by a business that was friendly to the church. The Lord Rabbit had briefly introduced Yellowfly to Briar before the fighter had left to meet the rest of his gang, who had been instructed to wait for him in the tiny back room of a bakery near the Alderman's home. After collecting his people, he had taken them to the cobbles, using alleys and dark lanes whenever possible to stay out of sight. Yellowfly was relatively sure they had not been spotted by any guards, 
and, when they arrived, had proceeded around back of the nondescript warehouse that stood side by side with numerous other nondescript warehouses. They could not enter by the front doors. The place was in disuse and had been empty for years. At least, that was the illusion the owners were going for. The fat iron chain and padlock on the front door were very real, but if one knew a certain trick, getting inside was simple. The warehouse's back door was completely boarded up. However, this was a false barrier. The boards had been nailed together in a single piece, and the long nails that held it in place against the outer wall were deliberately loose. If one knew this, the whole thing could be wiggled out and removed. Then the door could be opened, and the boards could be wiggled back into place before it was closed and barred from the inside. It was a crude but effective way to make the place look completely shut up from the outside while guild members conducted their business or hit out inside. The warehouse was a 60 by 60 foot square with a 30 foot ceiling and not much else. There was a pyramid of barrels stacked against one wall and half a dozen small crates piled in a back corner. The place was drafty, dark, and hollow. It smelled of mice. The barrel they stood around now was the only one that was not empty. They had rolled it into the center of the floor to use as a kind of table, and everyone had put all their armor and weapons, except for the Silverthorn, inside. The paladin's immaculate blade was presently in Shawnee's hands. She had taken a ball of twine from the cellar of the Fallfallow and was now wrapping it tightly around the handle, over and over, trying to disguise its elegance. She had also traded Yellowfly's scabbard for the Silverthorn's fancy silver one. Well, there's one way we're not going to be able to get out, said Yellowfly, and that is through the south gate. By now they'll have all of our descriptions from your brothers and sisters, Bozu, and they might know about that. Here, Yellowfly pointed at the Silverthorn blade in Shawnee's hands. It may well be the real reason for the arrests. If not, and depending on how hard those clerics have been questioned, my guess is that they'll be very actively looking for the two of you, Katsbane and Shawnee. The magic user in the rogue knew the Yellowfly was referring to the caper involving the holy symbol swap. Hmm. Yellowfly scratched at his growth of beard. I wonder if we ought to hide the blade here. I must say, you've done a good job with the pommel, Shawnee. It was true. Under Shawnee's careful attentions, it had become very pedestrian-looking indeed. The blade stays with us, said Bazu flatly. It was the first time he had said anything in quite a while. As you wish, Bazu, as you wish. Yellowfly paused before he continued. Anyway, as I was saying, even with forged documents, I doubt we'd make it through the main gate. Not much going on now in the way of traffic we could use to our advantage right now, either. Fly was referring to the reduced amount of farm produce that entered the city during the winter months. We need other options. All right, time to come up with a course of action. Does anyone have any ideas? I don't care how bad or weird. For now, we put it all on the table. Then we'll sort through everything and pick our move. Before we start knocking about ideas to get briar patches to Nepule safely, we need to make a quick die roll. Travel through the city is now dangerous at all times. I'm going to rule that a wandering monster check will be required each time they must go out. That includes their travel from the Warrens to their current location in the Cobbles. So, a 1 on a d6 will mean they were spotted. Here's the roll. A 4. Man, that looked like a 1 for a second there. Phew. Okay, they've made it to their hideout without being spotted. So now we can go ahead and hear everyone's thoughts on how they might accomplish the mission to get Briar Patches out of the city. Bazu has only one idea. He thinks they should pray for divine aid. That's all well and good, but let's hear from the rest of the group before we rely on faith alone. Catsbane is thinking about his old master, Xavion the Red. 
He's not sure if or how the man could help them, and he does not want to involve him in anything dangerous, but that's really all Catsbane can think of. Jace says he knows a place along the ramparts of the outer wall where there are very few patrols. This is because the place has very little strategic significance as it overlooks Whitestone Cliff and Blue Heron Lake beyond, he explains. There's a rumor that it's haunted by the spirit of a broken-hearted soldier who jumped to his death from that wall years ago. Shawnee has also heard of a weak spot in the outer wall, but it's in Rosedale, closer to their current location. There's a shrine to Chartoon there, in the location of a drainage channel. It's small and might be frozen over, but she has heard that smugglers have used it to get in and out of the city in the past. Yellowfly has only one idea, and it is grim. While most of Silmoral's dead are buried in the various churchyards of Vesaluna or Sadal, inside the city. On occasions when mass executions are held, bodies of convicted criminals are often taken out of the city in wagons during the middle of the night and dumped into mass graves. Yellowfly has caught wind of this very thing having taken place after the king's three days of blood and justice. He thinks he might be able to bribe those in charge of disposing the bodies to let them ride along, or to hide in the wagon. Like I said, grim. I wonder, of all of these ideas, which has the best chance to actually succeed? Perhaps I should be asking, which is the least bad? Hmm. I think I can narrow it down to two ideas. The goal is to get the gesture out of the city, but it's not just about getting him out. It's about doing so without leaving a trace. My intuition tells me that the two best suggestions come from Yellowfly and Shawnee, and Jace's idea to use a neglected spot on the wall would require getting past two interior gates, the Thury and the Cernan, the latter of which would be under very heavy guard. That leaves Yellowfly's plan to exit the city along with, well, along with a corpse disposal detail, or Shawnee's idea to use the old smuggler system. Since Fly's plan would force the PCs to wait, I think it makes a better plan B. Therefore, Shawnee's smuggler's channel is the best choice. He comes as a mortal who will never die. For the laws of the gods, he will ever defy. A king with no subjects, crown nor throne. In his wary hand, he carries cards of flesh, fire, and bone, imprisoned in ice for crimes of the divine, fishes ever spreading to be broken in time. Like what you heard? Have a listen to the Dice Bar Gaming Podcast, a dark fantasy actual play podcast set in an original world and an original storyline, which spans over now 120 episodes. We utilized the Pathfinder 1E rule set, tried to keep the adventure and roleplay serious, but tell widely inappropriate jokes in between. If this is your cup of tea, please give us a listen on the podcaster of your choice. Between the Lines For a long time, Months, actually. I was looking for the right opportunity to bring Krell back into the story. I imagined a scene where the two brothers came face to face in a moment of climactic tension. Of course, Cole died, and that potential thread was left to dangle like so many others in the show's history. Then, in episode 36, I found a way to weave the thread back in. This was after Suro the Mad blackmailed Nudge Pickens, and by now, Captain Krell is really starting to shape up as a key NPC. 
It seems he's at the center of quite an expensive network, too. I think it's time to take a closer look at the late Cole's older brother and find out who he really is, by which I mean, I'm going to stat him up. Here's what we know so far. He's a black-hearted country boy who received a gentleman's education. I think he's going to have to be charismatic and smart. So when I roll up his stats, I'm going to put the two highest numbers in those attributes. The rest I'll leave up to the dice gods. Ready? Let's get into it. Rolling 3d6 six times. I've got a 12, a 13, another 13. Wow, these are great rolls. What else? Oh, a 16, a 12, an 8. Good gravy. Those are some excellent rolls. I'm going to place most of them as they fell, so using the best rolls as indicated before, the final results are Strength, 12. Intelligence, 16. Wisdom, 13. Dexterity, 12. Constitution, 8. Charisma, 13. Krell is a 7th level fighter at this point, with most of his skill learned through tutelage. Like any other PC or NPC, he will advance in level as the show progresses. For now, he gets 78 hit points, with my usual min out at half rule, but his constitution score will inflict a minus one penalty to each die. Rolling a whole handful of d8s gives me... A three, a four, a five, a couple of fours, a three and a four, for a total of 27. You know, for a seventh level fighter, that's not a lot of hit points, but I suppose it somewhat balances out his otherwise impressive stat array. Generating Krell's character sheet is not the only dice rolling I need to do today. There are too many unanswered questions, and the story needs a few reaction rolls before it can progress. For example, by now, word will be spreading that the entire priesthood of Sadal has been incarcerated. How will the public respond? I've mentioned before that worship of Sadal is not predominant in Silmoral, so that might indicate that a negative modifier should be applied to the role. But then again, I have also mentioned that there is talk of rebellion in town already. This could be the spark that ignites it. Let's find out by rolling a straight reaction check on 2d6. The higher the roll, the more accepting the public will be. The roll. An 8. They see it as one more injustice, but for most city folk, it does not really affect them personally, and they will not react in concert. At least, not yet. Speaking of the followers of Sadal, I want to roll a reaction check for Aaron S to withstand Krell's questioning. He's not going to be gentle about it, but if there's anyone in Silmoral with an iron will, it's Sister Aaron S. Can he break her? If he does, he'll learn about the Silverthorn and that demonic forces are at large in the city. I think a single d6 will suffice for this roll. A result of 1 to 4 will indicate how many days she can hold out before she breaks. A 5 or a 6 means she will choose death before she gives away any secrets. The roll. A 4. She's tough, but she's human, and she can only withstand so much. On day 123, she will crack and tell Captain Krell everything she knows. One final reaction check. A few episodes ago, Krell tried to capture Yellowfly's gang at Jace's family's ironmonger shop. He failed because Nudge Pickens, in a display of incredible honor, tipped Jace off, even at the cost of losing his own daughter, whom Suro held hostage. Krell would have blamed Suro for his failed raid, but would he have actually done anything about it? Now, I've already established that Krell and Suro are allies. They don't merely have interests in common, so I think that that will affect this role. I'm adding a plus one to the result to reflect this. Let's make the roll. 2d6. The higher the number, the more lenient Krell will be. I'm going to add his plus one charisma bonus here, too, as I suspect it's to his advantage to roll high. Here we go. The roll. Ooh, 
A three on the dice, plus two, is only five. Krell fears no man, and he will not be made a fool of. I think this man is very guilty of the sin of pride. After his humiliation at the ironmonger's shop, he orders the arrest of the warlock, but Sir of the Mad is nowhere to be found. Presently, Krell must still be hoping to catch the man, and he's probably sleeping with one eye open too. I mean, I would be. Chapter 42 Part 2 Day 119 Late Night Party Status The party status is unchanged. Shawnee didn't have to put on her boots or cloak as she was getting ready to leave. It was so cold in the warehouse that the companions hadn't taken them off to begin with. Yellowfly wouldn't let them build a fire either, and Shawnee, for one, did not argue about that. Jace and Yellowfly had, however, gotten into a quarrel just after sunset. Jace had wanted to go out on his own, and Fly had not allowed it. It's too dangerous, he had said. You get caught and we're all done for. The other man had protested vehemently. I need to check on Nudge. He most likely saved our lives, you know. And now he could be in danger. On the way to Mirapol, you said he was a clever man who could take care of himself. Remember? Inwardly, Jace had cursed Yellowfly for his keen memory. <sighs> I've changed my mind. Is that so wrong? After what happened with the Church of Sadal, it feels like anything might have happened. You have to trust him to take care of himself, I'm afraid. You aren't going anywhere tonight. Jace had bristled, then capitulated, accepting his leader's order. He was currently sitting in a corner, alone. While Jace brooded, Shawnee completed a few final preparations, coiling up a silk rope, also taken from the Fallfallow, and slipping a dagger down her boot. Her short sword and armor would have to stay behind. When Catsbane wished her luck, she laughed mysteriously and went out through the back door. Yellowfly fitted the false barricade back into place behind her and then barred the door after closing it. He didn't often pray to the gods, but he did so now. Shartoon, Missaluna, Sidol, whoever's listening, please watch over her and bring her back safe. Yellowfly must be pretty worried. He doesn't really believe in the power of prayer, at least not when the prayers are his own. Still, regardless of the three major deities of Silmoral, it's possible that the dice gods will hear him. Or not. Let's find out. Shawnee must endure a wandering encounter check as she makes her way through the cobbles and then to the wall separating the Hightown Market from Burtum Square, which is just south of her destination in the Rosedale District. This is the same wall that features the Thury Gate for legitimate passage. Shawnee won't be using the gate, of course. But first things first. The wandering encounter roll. A 1 on a d6 means something happens. Here's the roll. A 5. So far, so good. The next roll is a thieves' ability check. Shawnee needs to climb up the wall in some secluded spot she knows about behind one of the many businesses and dwellings. She's got a 91 base chance to succeed here, though I'm applying a minus 10% penalty to account for the icy conditions. If she fails this roll, I think plan A might be over before it really begins. The roll on D percentile. A 28. It's no problem for someone like Shawnee, who scales the wall with ease and then finds a good spot to secure her rope up top before climbing down the other side and leaving the rope behind to use again on the return trip. Burton Square, often a crowded and busy place, is washed out, desolate, and empty of any people, with the exception of six corpses that hang from a gallows on the stage. They've been left behind by the executioners and officials as a warning. Shawnee would like to get closer and see if any of them are clerics she might recognize from her stay at the Church of the Sacred Flame, but she decides not to. 
Crossing the empty square would potentially expose her to anyone watching it. Instead, she sticks to the shadowy perimeter, her curiosity unsatisfied, moving through the falling snow and into the outskirts of the Rosedale district. Up ahead, she can see the city's innermost wall. Historians might one day call it the Cernan Wall, but Silmarillions would not typically use that name. They'd just say, the wall, and leave the rest to context. As I'm imagining the little form of Shawnee silently picking her path through the moonlight with the snow falling all around her, I realize I have overlooked something. If this were a table game, any group of players worth their salt, if they were in control of my PCs, would have had Catsbane cast Invisibility on Shawnee before she went out. Well, a mistake is a mistake. I'm not going to retcon it. If Shawnee is caught during her outing, I'll have no one to blame but myself. Alright, I think by now she'll be close to the spot in the wall with the smuggler's channel. Let's join her and find out if her plan might actually work. Chapter 42 Part 3 Day 119 Late Night Party Status Shawnee, 22 of 22 hit points If Cole were still with them, the plan would not work, Shawnee suddenly realized, as she crouched down at the base of the city's outer wall. The smuggler's channel was small, extremely small. The visible part, above the waterline, was only two feet by two feet, and she didn't think it went very deep. She was happy to see that it was not a sewage drain. Its purpose was to take rainwater, or snowmelt, as it flowed down the natural incline of the Rosedale district and allow it to pass out of the city. This would prevent water from pooling up and creating a swampy mess in this spot during the warmer months. Most residents of the city wouldn't care about such an occurrence one way or another, but this was Rosedale, whose inhabitants were wealthy and thus had more sensitive noses. Small as the channel was, Shawnee thought it would be just big enough for the largest of them, that would be Yellowfly, to pass through. There were a few problems though. For one, the water was frozen. Luckily. Using her dagger and quickly chipping away at the surface ice taught her that it was thin and would be easily broken. The water under the ice would be cold, though. There was no getting around that. Shawnee wondered how cold water needed to be in order to be deadly. Could they crawl through and survive long enough to reach the other side? Catsbane might know about that sort of thing, but she had no idea. Finally, there was the problem of the iron lattice grate. Seven horizontal bars and seven vertical. She could see how it could be swung open like a cage door, but there was a fat padlock on it to prevent the unauthorized from doing so. In fact, there were seven of these too, though only one of them actually held the grate shut. The rest had been attached by the followers of Chartoon, no doubt. This was said to be a shrine to the patron saint of thieves, or so Shawnee had heard. She had also heard that those who followed in the footsteps of the deity could pass through. The meaning was clear. The lock could be bypassed by someone with enough skill. Luckily, this was a skill she happened to have. She crouched into a comfortable position, taking a quick glance over her shoulder to make sure she was alone, before slipping her dagger back into her boot and fishing her thieves' tools from her belt pouch. Then, she got to work. As a sixth-level thief, Shawnee has a 45% base chance to succeed at her attempt to open locks. Her magical gloves add 10%, but I'm applying a minus 10% penalty to account for the cold, so this'll be a straight roll. Here goes. I'll need to roll 45 or under on D percentile. I've got 26. The lock opens in her steady hands and she leaves it open, but hanging in the same spot, as she turns back to make the return trip and rejoin her companions. That was lucky. 
but unfortunately, I'll need to make another wandering encounter check to see if she's spotted on the way back to the warehouse. I'm going to skip the climb walls check though, since she has sensibly left herself a rope. Here's the roll for wandering encounters. I want to avoid a one on a d6. Rolling. A four. Good. She makes it back without any problems and without being seen. It was a few hours before sunrise on the next day when they heard her knock the correct pattern on the outer barricade. Fly, who was waiting up for Shawnee, let her in and replaced the concealing board behind her before rebarring the door and following her inside. The others were roused from sleep and joined them at the upright barrel. Shawnee's teeth were chattering and she took a few moments to rub her shoulders before sticking her hands under her armpits. This good news and bad news, she managed, followed by a loud sniff. Tell us everything, said Yellowfly, draping his own dry cloak over her snow-covered one. Shawnee pulled her hands free to lift the hood of Yellowfly's cloak so that her face was framed in fox fur. She told them about the lock and how she had managed to get it open. She told them that the channel was small, but would be large enough if the gesture were no stouter than Yellowfly. She also mentioned that while the ice was thin and easy to break, the water below was icy cold to the touch, and that this, more than anything else, concerned her. Catsbane thought it would be survivable, but worried about coming out on the other side wet, and then succumbing to the cold. Shawnee explained that there was enough headroom above the water, that, if they broke the ice as they went, they wouldn't have to hold their breath, and could probably carry packs and dry clothes above their heads. It would be awkward, for sure. Difficult, yes, but possible. Jace stood along with them, listening but saying nothing. He was still sore from his row with Yellowfly. Bazu was with them too, and he offered what he could. In fact, his face held what the others considered an unreasonable amount of confidence when he said, There is no need to fear. Have I not already told you that I shall pray to Sadal for assistance? The Lord of Light shall provide. Yellowfly pursed his lips. He didn't expect much in the way of divine aid. He was more inclined to put his faith into careful planning, and so the companion spoke for another half hour or so, making sure everyone knew what to do. When they were done, Yellowfly took his cloak back from Shawnee and said, Very well. I'll go and collect our charge. Wait here for another half hour or so, and then go meet me by the wall. Is the rope still in place? Shawnee nodded. Very well. I will see you in Owen. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help to support it, there are loads of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum world-building tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. This one is from Apple Podcasts and was posted by Pliers20. Pliers20 writes, Really enjoy the unique format, and it's cool to see the podcast grow and develop as the series progresses. John seems like a thoughtful and generous creator, so I had to take the time to actually write a review. I appreciate it, Pliers20. These reviews really do help the show in a meaningful way. If anyone listening has thought about leaving a review and decided it probably wouldn't really make a difference, let me tell you, it does. It helps the show reach new listeners through the algorithm, and it also lets me know, in an endeavor that sometimes feels like yelling into the void, that folks are digging my art. So, for taking the time to do that, Pliers20, thank you very much. I'd also like to thank my excellent cast of voice actors. Bazu is played by Andrew Fling from the wonderful team over at Tumbledye Games. 
Kevin Berenger, another member of the TumbleDye team, plays Jace. I have a musical collaborator on this episode. Eddie Traeger helped to create the score in part one. Eddie can be found on Instagram at PastAnomaly. Eddie also has an uber light rules hack for old school role-playing games called Strange Brew, which is available on itch.io and DriveThruRPG. He describes it as fast, fun, and pay what you want. For listeners who'd like to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Now this is a matter of supreme importance. Welcome to Stories from the First Watch. This is both a solo game and an experiment in storytelling. The story and the character's actions will unfold upon the roll of the dice. They are in control. Be careful what you say or you have no time at all. Follow the exploits of a party of adventurers forced to take on a dangerous mission on behalf of a shadowy organization. Just be careful when insulting minor lordlings. Their egos can be dangerous things. Available on Podbean, Spotify, and Podchaser. And come and listen to more stories from the first watch.